And now, Father, we come to your word, understanding that every word of God is true, and even the Old Testament was written for our instruction to remind us of who our God is, and that redemption is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that knowing you is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And oh, Father, I pray that you would use the truths of this text and other texts this morning to bear upon our hearts in such a way that we would give the Spirit sway over our lives and be fully ruled by you, O Lord Jesus. And teach us, Father, to guard our hearts with all diligence, for from them flow the springs of life. And be glorified now, Father, as we consider your word, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn with me to Psalm 86 once again. We looked at this this morning, or read a portion of it this morning. And rather than diving back into the Gospel of John, today was supposed to be John chapter 3. And uh, with all the things that went on this week, I realized that I just wasn't going to be able to do it justice. And then I was going to have to leave, because next weekend I'm out of town. And so I thought rather than uh, giving you half of that and uh, not being able to do a full treatment of John chapter 3, we would just wait for a couple of weeks and come back to it when we can take a fresh start and spend a few weeks on it. There's so much rich truth there. I want to make, make sure you get it as it was intended to be received. So this morning, rather than diving into chapter 3 of John, I just want to offer some pastoral counsel for our mutual encouragement. It's not often I preach a, a topical message. If you're new here, we typically just go verse by verse through uh, now the Gospel of John. But I think I think once in a while it's good for us just to step aside and, and re- be reminded of some things that are so critical to our walk with the Lord. I suspect everyone, everyone here who knows the Lord and walks in the Spirit has experienced the frustration that comes when you realize that your heart has grown, has grown cold and dull toward the things of God. You know what that's like. You come to church, you find yourself especially moved and convicted or encouraged, and if that didn't happen to you this morning in singing what we sang this morning, then this message is especially for you, especially for you. But we come and we hear the singing, we participate in the singing and the preaching and the prayer, you walk away out of the service with a refreshed and renewed sense of spiritual vitality, and you think there's no way in the world you're ever going to let your heart grow cold and lifeless and unmotivated ever again. And you wake up next morning, and it's gone. It's gone. You get back to life. You get back to all the things, the realities of work, housekeeping, homeschooling, bill paying, other mundane essentials of life. And before you know it, it's gone. Ever been there? Ever experienced that? I have on a regular basis. And that's something that I want to encourage you with. Listen, the normal Christian life is not like getting on a train and you just ride along the tracks and there's never any deviation. If, if, something, if you ever deviate, then you're train wrecked, or Paul would say shipwrecked, and people have in their mind that that's what, this, that, that's what the Christian life is about. It should be perfect. It should be the wheels are this far apart and we're moving at this speed and we're going in that direction and we're not going to deviate from that until we get off. That's not normal. That's Jesus, 
But that's not us who have to battle sin all the time, and not just sin, but all the, the cultural and life forces that are, that are pressing in with us. So, so out with the train idea. We're not riding along a, a track. We are more like a little piper cub against a strong wind. And you know you're in the air now because of Christ. You've been forgiven of your sin. I love that Romans 8 passage that says uh, that that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And if you're not careful, you may say, oh, does that mean we don't struggle with sin anymore? Are you kidding? Imagine it being an airplane. It takes off. Are there any forces pulling on that airplane? You bet there are. Gravity, turn the engine off. You're going to figure that out really, really quick. But there's also other forces. There's crosswinds. There's updrafts. There's downdrafts. There's, there's all kinds of things. There's rain and there's clouds and there's all kinds of things in your environment that come and try to push you off course. And you're constantly making corrections this way and that way and pulling up, pulling up. And so often I have to just tell myself, pull up. You're going to crash or go down or you're too high or whatever. And your little life is like this. And you're constantly, if the line is straight toward God's destination for you to get you to glory, you may be following that line generally, but you're going to be all over the place and constantly making corrections. That's the normal Christian life. And I hope that gives you hope, but I hope that also helps you understand what the main point of this message is. You have to be diligent about this because you think you can just turn on the propeller, take off on the runway, and hold your steering wheel straight while you drink your Red Bull until you get to the end, when you come back out of the clouds, you're going to be on a a different continent and nowhere near where you expected to land. Why? Because you weren't making all the necessary corrections. Listen, I don't know about your heart, but I know my heart is so easily blown to the left and to the right and up and down and It's a wonder God has anything to do with us. We're so fickle and so easily distracted, prone to wander, Lord. I feel that. I feel it. And I think anyone who attempts to walk in the Spirit feels that on a regular basis. And you're probably feeling it this morning to some degree. And so I just want to go back to Psalm 86, and we could have picked any number of passages But I want you to see David struggle with something like this. And so Psalm 86, verse 11 reads, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Or I think the King James says it, I think, better when it renders it, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. What is an undivided heart? What is a divided heart? Look at the next verse, verse 12. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. You know what he's saying? This is, this is the goal, Lord. This is, this is my goal for my life. It's a good goal because I know it's your goal. And my goal and your goal are this that I would love the Lord my God with all of my heart and with all of my soul and with all of my mind, without deviation. So help me. Help me. May my passion be single. 
May everything in my life be pointed toward glorifying and magnifying the excellencies of God in Christ. You see, David knew what every honest Christian knows, namely that our hearts are fickle things, we're prone to wander, our affections for the things of God are too often like the morning mist or the early dew. They appear for a little while, and they're gone. We're overwhelmed at one moment by thoughts of God's infinite grace at the cross. Our hearts are set aflame with holy affections for God. Our hatred of sin is inspired and our renewed urgency for prayer. And then within a few short hours, our souls return to that dull and listless state that it was at first. Have you ever wondered what can be done to maintain an undivided heart? I have. I do every day. Because I got to fight for this. I got to fight for it. Sometimes the crosswinds are pretty strong. Sometimes the air pocket is pretty vacuous and you dive fast and unexpectedly. So how do you keep your heart aflame for the Lord in a world that tends to quench the spirit? How do you keep your heart aflame for God in a world that is bent on quenching the spirit? Well, a few things, and many more. You can just, we could do a whole series on this, I suppose, but I just want to offer you four things, just as I've been thinking about these. Number one, examine your heart's affections. In other words, keep close watch on what's going on in your heart. And we're not talking about morbid introspection here, but we are talking about regularly thinking about where's my heart right now? Have I even thought about God in the last hour or two or day or two? Somehow along the way, I think us uh, evangelical, conservative evangelical Christians are so conservative that we've kind of bought into or have been taught um, that thinking is good, but feeling is bad, or thoughts are good, emotions are bad, at least when it comes to worship, at least when it comes to uh, glorying in Christ, magnifying his name, worshiping him. We have emotions, we understand that because we're human, but they kind of need to be kept subdued at all costs because they're really nothing but trouble. But I want you to realize that that kind of thinking is unbiblical. It's just flatly unbiblical because throughout the Bible, we are commanded not only to have emotions, but to express them. And there are some who will teach. God is not commanding you, for instance, to be joyful because you can't command emotions. You can't control emotions. And I would say God can command anything he wants. And whatever he commands, he also gives. This is the sovereignty of God. And this is submitting to his rule in our lives. And so God does command our affections. Old, old, old term, old word, affections. Our modern word would be emotions. Um, so, so where do we find this? Let me just give you a few examples Philippians 4.4, 4. you all know this text. In fact, all of these you're probably going to know. Philippians 4.4, 4. 
It starts out, first word is rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. And in case we missed it, he says, and again, I say rejoice. Interesting word, rejoice. 151 times it's used in the Bible. And it means glad, to be glad or happy in the Lord. We're not to be a bunch of deadpan theologians. Woe to us if we are the frozen chosen. We're called to be enthusiastic children who enjoy the inexpressible delights of having God as our Father and Christ as our brother. We're commanded to have this emotion, this affection. It's supposed to be a common characteristic of every child of God. Witness the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And what's number two? Joy. You know, when I studied that one time, I saw all these fruit of the Spirit and realized most of these are not emotions. Love is not an emotion here. It's given. The whole context is you're in a church and there's potential for conflict, and there was conflict in the Ephesian church and in the Corinthian church, and he's saying, love one another. Love. It's a fruit of the Spirit, which means you're, you're not killing each other. You're giving to each other what the other person needs that you have because God wants you to. That's love. To love is to give. Peace. Peace isn't that feeling of peace. It is uh, it's not the peace that passes all understanding. It's another context. This is peace between people who should be at each other's throats. But there's that thing in between. Joy, love, joy, peace. And you just can't get around the fact that God is commanding you, not only should you love one another, not only should you be at peace with one another, but what should bind your hearts together is mutual joy in God. Joy. So rejoice. Rejoice. Mary Jane's mother-in-law, mother, Charlie's mother-in-law used to say, rejoice, rejoice, you have no other choice. (laughs) We're commanded to have this emotion, this characteristic in our lives. How about this one? Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desire of your heart. Delight yourself not in his gifts, but in him. Which is just another way of saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Listen, if he is the desire of your heart, the blessings that come out of that, they don't have to be material. Ask anyone who knows. Here we're not just commanded to know about God and to take delight in knowing. We're we're not just to know about him. We are to to take delight in knowing him. Fellowship with God is not supposed to be dull and boring and theoretical. It's supposed to be exhilarating. We should cultivate delight for God in our hearts. Now that may be a new concept for you. Cultivate delight. You're going to see it again here in just a minute. Cultivate delight. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It's springtime. How many of you are planting a garden? <laughs> you put the seeds and there's one. I see that hand. Um, I've, got, I've got two going and thinking about doing a third before it's too late. And my wife goes, oh, not another garden. 
But you know what? It takes work. You can't just plant the seeds and think, okay, God, it's yours. You've got to cultivate that thing. You've got to water it. You've got to fertilize it. You've got to go out and pick weeds out of it. And that's what it's like for us. You want to have joy in the Lord? You've got to cultivate that. You want delight in the Lord? You've got to cultivate that. It's hard work. It takes discipline. It takes effort. How about this one? Nehemiah 8.10. Finish this phrase for me. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nothing will sap your strength like being separated from God. Nothing will sap your, uh, your desire and ability to worship and to serve and to give like a lack of joy. But it's not going to happen all by itself. Oh, well, it does from time to time. You'll come here and you'll, you'll sing the songs and one of the songs really speaks to you and you'll feel joy and it'll be spontaneous and you should love it when that happens. That's great. It shouldn't be the only, the only time it's happening. There ought to be times, most of the time perhaps, when you wake up in the morning and you open the Word of God and you think, man, Lord, I don't even, I don't even know if I want to read this morning. I mean, I don't feel good. I'm tired. I didn't sleep well last night. We've been on this camp out for two days. We're exhausted and sunburned. And I just, I just want to go back to bed. And in those moments, you must discipline yourself and say, no, no, no. But this is, God has given me opportunity to dig in his treasure chest and find riches beyond imagination. And I may not find it right now, but I'm digging anyway. That's what it means to cultivate delight, to cultivate joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, so fight for it, work for it. Psalm 51, 11 through 12. This is Psalm, Psalm 51 is that great confession of David. It's, um, people will say there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. Well, okay, I understand what you're saying, but there is Psalm 51 when people ask me, what should I pray to come to Christ? Or what should I do to repent? How, give me a vocabulary. Psalm 51. And this is one of the things he says, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Watch this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. In other words, give me a willing spirit. I'm completely dependent on you, God. I'm completely dependent on you. Restore to me. I don't know how many times I've prayed that prayer. God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Is there sin in my life? Is there what? What is there in my life that's robbing me of the joy of knowing you? How about this, Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the affection of peace. We know that because he's got it centered in your heart. It's that peace that says, yeah, there may be a, there may be a whirlwind around me. And life seems to be just flying apart at the seams and the wheels are coming off. But I am at the center of the storm in the hand of my Father and nothing can touch me here. That's a holy affection. Peace. Peace. When the world is falling apart. But I don't want you to think that, that the, only, the only affections that God wants you to cultivate and experience are positive. They're not all positive. 
And this is so important for us to learn because it's not always joy that we need. We're Americans. We're happy all the time. We're giddy. We have to, when we take people overseas, like to Russia, we have to say, calm down. Calm. Everybody knows you're an American. Why? Because you're laughing out loud and you're clapping and you're singing all the time. Just settle down. Don't be a distraction. I mean, we're giddy for all the wrong reasons. We're happy about the movies we've watched or the songs that are on the radio or whatever it is. And our hearts can be just as cold toward God as ever. But we're happy. You know what James says? James 4, 8 through 9. Let this trickle in. You ready? James 4, 8 and 9. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, let's just stop right there. You wake up in the morning, and you think, God, where? Man, I feel like the ceiling is made of iron, and my prayers are going nowhere. I don't know how to pray. I'm not getting anything out of what I'm reading, or I don't want to read this morning or pray. And here's what God says. Draw near. Draw near. I will draw near to you. Draw near to God. You discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, and you will not be disappointed. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, this is the context. The context here is, is sin. He's confronting people who are, who are not addressing their sin appropriately. And here's what he says next. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Think divided heart, you double-minded. Now watch this. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy, which God commands everywhere, let it be transformed into gloom. You know what he's saying? There are times when, when you've sinned and you don't feel bad about it. You just go, oops, I did that again. We call it in counseling, we call it an oops view of sin. Real technical, right? It's an oops view of sin. Oops, oh, I did that again. Oh, oh glad that's under the blood of Christ. Uh, that'll, that'll kill your, your love for God in a heartbeat. And you know what James is saying? When you're not cultivating joy, you ought to be cultivating sorrow. You ought to be cultivating sorrow. You ought to be saying, God, I know I've sinned, and I don't feel bad about it. That scares the fire out of me. I know it's wrong. I know it's wrong. Help me to feel how wrong it is. Cultivate sorrow. Cultivate mourning. You should weep over your sin. Sometimes that's what God wants us to cultivate. And there are other times when God forbids us from tolerating certain emotions or affections. Like in Joshua 1.9, here's Joshua, the new leader. He's taking the place of Moses. He's the new president of the country, so to speak. And uh, Moses is dead, and they're on the east side of the Jordan River, and the promised land is on the west side of the Jordan River. And, and how do you cross a river with two million people? After 40 years of desert wandering, how do you cross it? There's no ferries. There's no boats. How do you cross the river? We've got to walk over the river. Got to walk through the river. And then, we, and then task, that's task one. Cross the river with all these people without, anybody, without losing anybody. Number two, on the other side of the river, there is a city that we're, we're commanded to attack 
and it's the impenetrable city. Everybody knows you can't beat the, Jericho, the Jerichoites. I don't know if that's what they were really called, but you can't conquer Jericho. It's, it's, they're too fortified. You'll never do it. So God's commanding them, do it anyway. Cross the river, conquer Jericho. Got, Jericho, got it? And so one night, Joshua goes out, and you can just imagine him standing by the river, looking over the river, looking toward Jericho, seeing the lights of Jericho in the distance. And all of a sudden, somebody steps out from behind a bush, and he's got a sword. And, Jericho, and Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And he says, neither. I am the captain of the army of hosts. I'm the captain of an army of angels. And Joshua fell on his face. And here's, here's, what, here's what God told Joshua. Do not be afraid and do not get depressed. And here's why. I am with you. I have not commanded you to do something that I will not do for you as you obey. Steal yourself like a man and resolve to obey and behold the wonders of God. Just haul the water, Joshua. Just haul the water. I'll take care of the rest. You just do what I say. And, and he did. You know the end of that story. Here's my point. The point is that the Bible is full of commands about our emotions. In this case, you're not allowed to be controlled by fear, and you're not allowed to be ruled by depression. Snap out of it. Trust me. Trust me, God is saying. And so we need to take these scriptures seriously and examine them carefully, because like it or not, they tend to have, these, these affections tend to have a powerful influence upon whether we're drawing closer to God or whether we're falling away. Consider this. Why? Are we commanded, commanded to sing God's praises? Why are we commanded to sing? Now, I'll just tell you, sometimes I sit in the back, and as we're singing, I'll look around, and I know some of you aren't singing. Do you realize that's disobedient? You say, well, I can't sing. Well, the Lord doesn't say anything about whether or not you're tone deaf. That's for him to worry about. You should sing anyway. Sing anyway. Here's what Jonathan Edwards wrote. This is great. He says, the duty of singing praises to God, singing praises to God, seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we shall express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose. We're commanded to sing. Why? Because God wants your heart. God wants your heart to be inflamed with affection for him. And you know what? This morning it took me two services to get there. Uh, that's the great thing about, and I would encourage you to do it, just come to the early service and then come to the second service too. It'll be so good for your soul. <laughs> we won't have seats for everybody, but the second time you sing those songs, oh my word, they're just better. It's just better. But it's that discipline of singing. It's that discipline of worshiping and rejoicing and delighting and sometimes cultivating sorrow and sometimes cultivating joy and knowing the difference as to when. The problem is our hearts are so quickly cooled and stricken with dullness toward the things of God. 
We've all experienced holy affections from time to time, but it's, it's rare that we find a person who is so unaffected by the world that their, that their lives seem deeply and consistently under the sway of the Holy Spirit in terms of knowing God. And that doesn't mean, and we're not talking about a person who can go watch any movie and do anything and be any place and be unaffected. No, and this is a person who, who, no matter where he goes, he's making decisions. Should I go here? Should I go there? Should I do this? Because I am guarding my heart. <coughs> pastor Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan pastor, one, one times wrote this. It is possible to keep the heart so close to God as to be fit for prayer and the hearing of the word and for receiving the sacrament every day or every hour of the day, but this needs a very close walking with God and communion with God. And the truth is, this is very rare. Most men, I love this phrase, most men let out their hearts so much to other things that their consciences cannot but tell them that if God had called them to prayer at such a time in the day that they would be altogether unfit for it. But it is not so with those who walk closely with God, even though they are in the world. It's about choices. It's about the choices we make. If we're to keep our hearts aflame in a world that tends to quench the spirit, we need to learn to examine our hearts carefully. And we need to be aware of the condition of our hearts at any given moment. Before we make the decision, for example, to watch a certain program on television that might quench the spirit, we need to, we need to ask ourselves, what will this do to my affections? What's this going to do to my heart? It's not, here's the question most people, especially young people, ask. Do I have liberty to do this? I have liberty in Christ. I can watch what I want. I can do what I want. I can eat what I want. I can drink what I want. I can go where I want. I have liberty. That's not the question. Here's a better question. What will the exercise of your liberty in that situation do to your heart? What's it going to do to your heart? And Paul would say, even more importantly, what's it going to do to someone else's heart? But let's just think about your heart. What will this do to my affections? Will it fan the flame of my passion for God? Or will it cause me to delight in stupidity or sensuality or feel some fleshly appetite that will leave me unfit for worship or prayer or, or to joyfully point someone else to Christ? Will my participation in this activity do any of that? Will I, after I get done doing this activity, will I be fit for worship and prayer? Or how about this? Before we enter into a conversation with our friends, um, we need to ask ourselves something like, am I prepared to guard my heart so that my holy affections will be assisted rather than harmed in what is said and what I say and what is done? Or before we turn on the radio or click on a, another link on the internet, we need to ask ourselves, what effect will this have upon my heart? Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. You want to live to God? You've got to guard your heart. How many times have we been able to come to church and hear the word preached only to leave fairly unaffected by what has been said or sung or prayed about. 
Why does that happen? The only answer is that somewhere over the last week or month or year, we allowed the fire of our hearts to be quenched by the influences that we have allowed into our lives that we are insensitive to. We allow the circumstances and influences of the world to quench the spirit. Let me ask you this. How was your heart when you came to church this morning? Did you think about the condition of your heart before you walked in that door this morning? Was it prepared to worship and sing for joy to the Lord? If it wasn't, did you think, I, I, need to deal, I need to figure out what's going on in my heart, I need to deal with it, I might have to cultivate some sorrow here, I might need to, I don't know what. Was it full of anticipation for hearing some word of encouragement or a tender rebuke from the scriptures? Was it ready for prayer or to glory in some excellency of Christ in conversation with a brother or sister? Was it ready to pray with someone in the body before you leave? Or was it just dull and hard and virtually unfit for communion with God? Richard Baxter warns us, I love this, um, Richard Baxter knew what it was like, probably from personal experience, I'm sure, to walk into a church, sit down, hear the faithful preaching of the word, and be totally unaffected. And he wrote this, we must be careful not to allow ourselves to be like the blacksmith's dog who sleeps at the base of his master's anvil while the hammer is pounding and sparks flying in every direction the blacksmith's dog. That image comes to my mind frequently. We were at Southern Seminary a few weeks ago, my, my family and I, and a uh, long drive. We drove all night and then got up the next morning and, and made another drive and, and then went back to the school, got a little bit of sleep, woke up the next morning. It was cold and we we're going to go to chapel. And we got into chapel and I was cold and I was tired. I don't want to say exhausted, but I was really tired. And, and they brought in a, a preacher, a young guy, great message. I didn't hear a word of it. I just conk. <laughs> just, oh. And I think back, and I, I, I've had the chance now to, to watch that sermon again on video, because my wife brought it up. And uh, we were watching it again, and I thought, wow, that day, I mean, good excuse or bad excuse, I was like the blacksmith's dog. The hammer was pounding and sparks were flying and I was just dead to it all. We've got to be careful. Oh, that we would have a heart like young David Brainerd who wrote in his journal one day, spent two hours this morning in reading and prayer by turns, was in a watchful tender frame, afraid of everything that might cool my affections and draw away my heart from God was watchful and tender and jealous of my own heart, lest I should admit carelessness and vain thoughts and grieve the blessed spirit so that he would withdraw his sweet, kind, and tender influences. If we want to keep our hearts aflame for God, we must start by taking seriously the affections of our heart. What are they right now? What's going on in your heart right now? Some of you need to be cultivating joy. Some of you need to be cultivating sorrow. Some of you need to be bringing truth to bear on your heart that says, do not be afraid. Do not be depressed. God is with me. 
Secondly, and these last few will be very quick. Number two, invigorate your heart with prayer. Invigorate your heart with prayer. We read, we read Psalm 86, we immediately realize that this is kind of a written prayer. Watch this, verses 1 through 3. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you I cry all day long. What's he doing? He's praying. It's kind of a written prayer. He prays for God's help because of his enemies. He woke up every day. Imagine, imagine you're king, and you're living in the B.C. era, where um, you had to have guards around you all the time because there were always people who wanted to kill you so that they could be king. And so he constantly was aware that he didn't just have people who didn't like him. He had people who, were, who, who would kill him if they had any opportunity. And people who were against him. He had to rule the nation. And so frequently throughout the Psalms, he's praying, God, spare my life. You know my enemies. Help me. Help me not be distracted by them. He's praying. But notice how in verse 4, he asked God to enliven a specific affection of his heart. Verse 4, make glad the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Here's David. Here's what he's saying. Lord, I got enemies. The world is kind of flying around me like a, like a tornado. And, um, and, I, and I know my propensity is to get discouraged and to let my heart wander. God, fill me with gladness in you. In the midst of this, my heart, I'm fighting for this. I'm striving for it. I'm disciplining myself. I'm asking you to do for me what you've commanded me to do. God, fill me with joy. Fill me with gladness. Make my soul glad in the Lord. Verse 5, he then worships God for his goodness and his readiness to forgive. Watch this. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. What's that? It's worship. It's worship. God, I know I'm unworthy. I praise you that you are such a forgiving God, and you are good, and you are abundant in loving kindness. And then he goes on, verses 9 and 10. He exalts in the fact that one day every knee will bow and worship before God. Watch this. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Do you pray like that? I mean, you ought to, you ought to highlight scriptures like this in your Bible so the first thing you can do when you get up, you read the Word of God a little bit, and then you go into your prayer time suggest you do it in that order. It helps. But grab some text like this, and God help me worship, and use the vocabulary of the Psalms or the prophets or wherever you find it in the Bible. Use the Word of God to inform your worship so that you're speaking truth to your soul and speaking it to God. That's what he's doing. And then in verses 11 and 12, he asks God to give him what he needs, namely an undivided heart. And there's more in this text. Here's what I want you to see, though. David, through this single prayer, it's um, 17 verses long. 
He's doing all kinds of stuff. He's worshiping. He's checking kind of the temperature of his heart, asking God to help him. He's, he's uh, confessing or he's, he's ready to confess sin. He's glorifying God as the ruler of the nations. He's asking for provision for what he needs. Kind of reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. Kind of reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. David knew how to pray. He prayed in the morning. He prayed at noon. And he prayed in what he called the night watches. That means in, in the evening. The night watches, they had, the guards had watches. They would have a set period of time, two or three hours, and then the next guard would come, and the next guard would come. They were the watches of the night. And David, David frequently talks about praying and meditating on God's word in the night watches. So there are three times. Daniel, same thing. Nehemiah, same thing. These guys knew what it was like to pray. And they prayed about everything. You get the impression that he just loved to talk about everything with God. You know, if you and I are going to maintain a heart that burns for God in a world that quenches the Spirit, then we need to be devoted to prayer. Do you struggle to pray? You probably do. I do. It's hard. A lot of times, it's just hard work. I mean, sometimes you just can't wait, and other times, most of the time, it just, it's work. You struggle to pray? Well, um, I found in my life that having a structure for prayer is really beneficial. And you're familiar with ACTS, Acts, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. How about the Lord's Prayer? Watch this. Turn to Matthew 6, 9 through 13. To watch my time here, but this will be worth it for you. Matthew chapter 6. Apparently, the disciples of John the Baptist had been taught by their master to pray, and now the disciples of Jesus are coming to him, and they're saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, okay, here's how you pray. Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this was not given to us to be a mantra, to repeat again and again and again as if, as if multiplying words was going to get the attention of God. No, he's giving us structure. I think he's giving us structure. And it looks like this. Number one, worship. Worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, or hallowed is your name. Your name is holy. It is hallowed. It is unlike any other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's like that. Your name is hallowed. That's worship. That's doing what David did, talking about the goodness of God and the holiness of God, the grace of God, the majesty of God, the power of God, the word of God. It's worship. Verse 10, your kingdom come. We might say this is mission. Mission. Your kingdom come. God, your name is hallowed. May it be hallowed around the world. Send your people, O God, to every people, to every language, to every island. Bring your kingdom. We know it already you rule in our hearts, and we are your kingdom of priests and saints before God. But, oh, Father, multiply it. 
fulfill your purpose, achieve your mission, and use us to do it. And then secondly, also here in verse 10, submission. Your kingdom come, watch this, your will be done. You ever pray that in the morning? I've learned to pray this in the morning. Father, I have a will, and it's bent towards sin, naturally. I want to start this day by saying, today, to the best I can, by the power of your spirit and your grace, I intend to relinquish relinquish my will for yours. Your will be done. How much so? How much is your will done in heaven? I want your will to be accomplished in my life today, and so I offer myself, I submit myself to you. Submission, worship, mission, submission. How about this one? Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. It's provision. You got needs? God wants you to bring your needs. But here's the thing, don't start there. Don't treat God like he's a cosmic butler supposed to bring you the stuff. He's God And yet, as God and as your Father, he asks you, he commands you to ask of him the things that you need. It's dependence. God, this is what I need. I need for you to so move in my children's hearts that they see their sin and fly to the cross. God, would you do that? God, I need a heart that's more tender to you. And we talk to each other sometimes in the office in the morning. Um, Say, you know, or at lunch we'll say, you know, how can I pray for you? I just pray, just pray that I love Jesus more. Why? That's a battle. Every day. And we'll ask each other, how's your love for Christ today? It's good, or I'm working on it, and I fight for it this morning, whatever. But pray, pray for your needs. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe it's a need because someone's sick. Pray, bring all of your needs to the Father. Worship, mission, submission, provision. How about this? Supplication. Not only praying for yourself, but for the needs of others. Paul said frequently, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. Pray for others. And then this, verse verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Um, How much... Forgiveness should you expect from God? It's as if Jesus is saying, how much have you forgiven others? Are you ready to forgive? Pray for forgiveness. Confess your sin. This is confession. We have worship, mission, submission, provision, supplication, confession. You know what the word confess means? It means to say the same thing. The same thing as what? Same thing as God. What does God say about your sin? And you should pray, God, help me to see my sin the way you see it. Help me to confess it. Help me to say the same thing about my sin that you, that you say about my sin. Help me to cultivate sorrow over this sin and repent of it. Confession. And then the last one, protection. Do you pray for protection? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I often pray for my children. God, Don't lead them into temptation, but reveal the sin they already have. There's enough there to drive them to the cross. And so it's worship, mission, submission, provision, supplication, confession, and protection. You want to invigorate the fire of your heart for God? Here's what you do. Be devoted to prayer. 
In fact, let me offer you a challenge. For the next five days, you ready for a challenge? Something very practical. And if you want, you can, you can write to me about it. Write to the church office and let me know how it's going. For the next five days, resolve to find two times per day when you will pray for 10 minutes. And use this structure. Or you can use Acts, doesn't matter to me. Use this structure. Start with worship, then mission, then submission, then provision. Or a lot of times I'll start with worship and jump right into confession. Just want to get that over with. <laughs> get it going. Set your, your iPhone or your Droid or your watch, if you have a watch, um, or your iPod or whatever you have, just set it for 10 minutes. And say, I'm going I'm to try to pray for 10 minutes. I'm going to use this structure, and let's see if I can pray for 10 minutes. And then you know what? Sometime around noon or 1 or 2 o'clock, sometime in the afternoon, go back. Because you're not going to finish praying through this, I guarantee. If you're serious about this, you will not finish these things. You're going to get one or two or three points down. You're going to get from worship to mission, maybe, to submission, and, and maybe start on provision, and you're going to go, things going to start beeping. First time I did this, I started in worship, and I set it for 10 minutes, and I was going to do all of these. And I was worship, 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 beep, 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 done. 10 minutes, and I never got to point two. That's what I want you to see. I want you to see that. I want you to see how easy it is to spend time with God, especially if you have a plan. And so do that. In the afternoon, do it. And you know what's going to happen? I think for many of you, you're in the afternoon, you'll find 10 minutes. All you need is 10 minutes. Set your timer again. Find a place that's quiet and, and pray. And just pick up where you left off. It might be provision. Okay, now I'm on provision, supplication, confession, protection. And you know what's going to happen? I think your timer's going to go off and you're going to say, oh, I'm going to have to do it again tonight. And it'll be morning and noon and in the night watches. And you'll realize that you can pray and you're going to say, I can't do 10 minutes, I've got to do 15. And then you'll say, I can't do 15, I've got to do 20. And we will become a praying people. You want to invigorate your heart for God? That's how you do it. And so here's my challenge. Would you do it twice a day for the next five days? <coughs> Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That's all I'm asking. Give it a chance. Give it a try. In the morning, and sometime in the middle, middle of the day, take 10 minutes each. In the morning, maybe spend some time in the Word first, and then prayer. In the afternoon, just prayer, 10 minutes. You with me? Oh, that was tepid. But I, I'm praying the Lord will, will invigorate you to do that. So pay attention to your heart's affections. Invigorate your heart with prayer. Two more things, very, very briefly. Enlarge your heart with meditation. Here's the rest of what God said to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall, what's the word? Meditate on it day and night. And you should be careful to obey everything that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Meditate on the word of God. You remember what David said in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't do any of those things, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, that's the word of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And if he does that, this is what he's going to be like. He's going to be like a tree 
planted firmly by streams of water. His leaf will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Meditate on the Word of God. Scripture memory, Scripture review. I tell sometimes my counselors, listen, God doesn't require you to memorize Scripture, but he does require you to meditate on it. And if you're meditating on portions of Scripture, you'll remember them. You'll have them memorized in no time. You want to invigorate your heart? Take the affections of your heart seriously. Invigorate your heart with prayer. Enlarge your heart. The idea of this is, a, this is an old, you know, 18th century term, enlarging your heart for God. And here's the idea. My, t- my heart tends to atrophy and shrivel up so that when I go to prayer, I can't pray. When I go to worship, I can't worship. When I think about God, my thoughts are really shallow. And so I'm going to do things. I'm going to pray in such a way. I'm pleading with God, enlarge my heart. Give me greater capacity to enjoy your glory. And then number four, and this is the most important one, I think, if there can be a most important here. Strengthen your heart with obedience. Back to James chapter 1, he says this, verses 22 through 24. But prove yourselves doers of the word. Here, if I can just connect this with the previous point, don't just meditate on Scripture. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten the kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law that gives freedom and abides in it, that's obeying it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. I've said it many times to this church as a warning. I'll say it again. In my almost 19 years here, the people who have sinned most egregiously, most, most of the people who have sinned most egregiously that we've had to discipline um, here, and there, thankfully there have been only a few but most of those people knew the Bible better than about 90, 95% of the rest of the congregation. Knowing the Word of God without doing it is just going to lead to you giving yourself license to sin. And that will be horrible. Don't just learn it. Don't just meditate on it. Don't just memorize it. Do it. Do what it says. As you're meditating on the word, ask yourself, what does God want me to do or change because of what I've heard? And then the first impulse of the Spirit should be acted upon lest it die for lack of attention. And don't come away saying, from the Bible, don't come away saying, God told me to do this. But have some humility about it and say, after reading the word this morning, my heart was burdened and I just... And I just believe God would be pleased if I do this or if I abstain from that. That's why I'm doing it. I haven't heard any voices, but here's what I have received. I've received the word of God. I've read it, and I think, how can I put this into place today in my life? And I think, in order to please the Lord, this is how I will obey that scripture. And you'll not only be an encouragement to others You'll be biblically sound and humble and keep the door open for people to speak into your life. 
Don't be vague, by the way, about how you answer the question, what does God want me to do? Ask yourself this, what does God want me to do, with whom, and when will I start? Psalm 119.60 says, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Oh, beloved. That's what God calls us to do. Meditate on his word and obey it quickly. If you don't obey it quickly, then the fire will go out and you'll begin making excuses and eventually believe those excuses and you'll just continue on in your disobedience. Woe to us if we do. Beloved, you want a heart that's a flame for God in the midst of a world that tends to quench the spirit? Here's what we do. Examine the heart affections regularly. Take the temperature of your heart. Secondly, invigorate your heart with prayer. Give life to your heart through prayer. Third, enlarge your heart with meditation on the word of God. And lastly, strengthen your heart with obedience. You know what? You get a whole church that's doing that or a whole family that's doing that, you're going to make an impact on the world around them. What else could happen? God will be there. And you'll just be hauling the water. And God will be performing miracles all around you. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this exhortation and this warning this morning and this invitation to discipline ourselves for the, person, for the purpose of godliness, discipline ourselves for our joy, for our purity, for our ability to pray, for our ability to worship, for our ability to communicate your truth. Father, forgive us for being lazy. I'm sure there are some here this morning who have heard my challenge and who are thinking, I I think I'm going to do that this week. Give them, Father, grace. Give them grace to do it. Help them to find someone to to lovingly ask them and to hold them accountable. I pray that people in this church body would do it together and encourage one another along the way. And, oh, Father, I pray that you'd be glorified in it, for we pray it in Jesus' name.